Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Ulrike Franke and I'm a researcher at ECFR. Today is the day after a long election night here in the UK. Once again, the Brits have surprised everyone by voting in a way that very few expected. Now, regular listeners might be wondering where Mark Leonard is, who normally moderates this podcast. But don't worry, he is here with me, but today he can't hide behind asking questions, but rather will have to answer them. He is here today to help me make sense of this UK general election. And what better place to do this than in Oxford? We are sitting here in the gardens of St. Youth College, where Theresa May studied as an undergrad student. I think right about now she may be wishing herself back to those happy days. So Mark, did you get any sleep last night or did you stay up all night following each result from each uh, constituency? I tried to follow all the results. I did doze off occasionally, but it was remarkable actually how we knew what was going to happen from uh, 10 o'clock when the BBC had their exit poll which showed that there was going to be a hung parliament and very few people could actually believe that that was what was going to happen so the night was a story about people's consciousness catching up with their <laughs> initial sense of the reality exactly i think a lot of people were cautious to believe the exit exit polls and said well let's see how it really um, what results we're really going to see at the end so all in all were you surprised by the outcome are you one of those political pundits who predicted something completely different i did think that theresa may was going to get a large majority and uh, i was very surprised to see that the labor party ended up getting over 40 percent of the votes and i think that the entire political class has yet again been caught flat-footed by the results of this election. People are maybe even more surprised by this than they were by the Brexit referendum. Well, in a way, I guess we have gotten used to being surprised. Okay, so can you explain to our listeners, especially those that may not be super familiar with the UK system, what exactly happened? Um, who won what and what does it mean? So the Conservative Party went into the election with a 24% lead in the opinion polls and ended up winning just 2% more than the Labour Party. The target for all uh, governments is to win 326 seats. So that's the basic minimum requirement for winning an election. But Theresa May went in with a 16-seat majority and she's ended up 10 seats short of uh, that majority and is having to do a deal with the Northern Irish Democratic Unionist Party which holds 10 seats in order to get that basic majority. So most commentators expected that she would at the very least increase the size of her majority and she's ended up completely losing it and for that reason her authority within the Conservative Party and within the country has taken a major hitting. So we're going to see a coalition government but we do expect that coalition government to be led by Theresa May and not Jeremy Corbyn, despite the losses of the, the Conservative Party and the gains of the Labour Party? I think it's, it's less likely to be a coalition government than a minority government led by Theresa May with support from the Democratic Unionist Party. Right. So Mark, what would you say, why did Theresa May so much worse than expected? What happened? It's very easy to be wise after the fact and you know after the Brexit referendum everyone came up with all the reasons why uh, 
the leave side one and now um, it's equally easy to be wise off to the fact but I think there are at least four main sets of causes which people are going to be thinking about and we'll find out which is the most important in the weeks ahead but I think the first is this question of leadership Theresa May called the election as a referendum on her strong and stable leadership and the campaign did a lot of damage to that claim firstly she sidelined uh, everyone else within the party when she was writing the manifesto and then when it was published she uh, turned her back on her own manifesto which has never been done in my lifetime before when one of the measures in the manifesto which was about the funding of care for elderly people suddenly became very unpopular was characterized by the media as a dementia tax people were getting uncomfortable about it and she walked away from it completely changed the policy and then wouldn't admit that she'd done that and it meant that she started out by looking maybe a bit less stable and a bit less strong and things got worse from that moment onwards she uh, seemed uncomfortable answering questions uh, from the public and from journalists she refused to take part in a debate with uh, with other party leaders and looked pretty shifty when she was being asked about her future prospects in the uh, by Jeremy Paxman who's a, a leading journalist who interviewed her and, and Theresa May uh, and Jeremy Corbyn so the first reason was was this question of leadership the second uh, thing I think was to do with austerity and, and the fatigue with austerity uh, which comes after um, seven years of, of cuts um, after the global financial crisis and Labour weirdly managed to, to change the, the frame on a lot of the debates. Many people thought that if there were a terrorist attack during the election campaign that this would enormously help Theresa May who had been Home Secretary and had a record of fighting terrorists. But they managed to, to show that um, she had cut police numbers by 20,000, that she cut the number of armed police, that she cut investments in counter-terrorism and investments in the intelligence services. And uh, weirdly managed to, to win the, the news cycles and the, and the fact that she wasn't willing even to admit that she'd made these cuts let alone come up with a, a, a good answer on them um, was, was quite striking. I think the third reason is Brexit. This was meant to be the Brexit election. Uh, people were being asked to vote for Brexit and since um, the referendum on the 23rd of June a year ago now uh, Theresa May has behaved as if, you know, 80, 90 percent of the country had voted for Brexit, whereas in fact it was 52 percent of the country that voted for Brexit. And the ideas and the aspirations of the 48 percent that remain that voted to remain have been sidelined and not really represented by any political parties. And some commentators are talking about this election as the revenge of the 48 percent who voted remain and um, it's quite clear that in some of the voting there was a big north-south divide with people particularly in the south seeming to to to, to vote against a, a hard brexit and i think the final uh, question is to do with uh, new political movements and alienation from the political system and jeremy corbyn was seen as unelectable by many people within the labor party because he had views which were out of touch with a lot of older people on terrorism, on the royal family, on nationalism, on defence issues. But what he seems to have managed to do in a Bernie Sanders technique 
um, has been to mobilise and excite uh, young people. And there are reports of a 72% turnout of 18 to 24 year olds, which is would be the highest level of young people turning out since 1964. And there are also a, a number of left-wing uh, people within the Labour Party who had sat on the sidelines during the New Labour period who have seemed to have returned to the fold. That's coupled, I think, with a general sense amongst many people that this was an unnecessary election and they punished Theresa May for for calling an election which they they didn't feel was necessary and that's not new other prime ministers who have called early elections quickly on have, have, have sometimes found that voters have punished them just for calling the election let alone for what ideas they had do you think the high young turnout has to do indeed with Brexit because in Brexit we saw that um, a lot of young people didn't actually go to vote and then they were disappointed by by the result. Do you think that in a way was a reaction to, to what happened there? Well, I think it's too early to know with any certainty about these things but that's certainly one of the hypotheses that's been put forward this is sort of briar's remorse by the young people who stayed at home on the 23rd of june now they're they're coming out to make up for their political apathy <laughs> in earlier votes right so brexit was one of the four reasons mm. you mentioned why uh, theresa may lost this election so what does the result now actually mean for the Brexit negotiations? Are we going to see the hard Brexit that Theresa May initially uh, promised and for which she wanted a stronger majority? Are we now going to see a soft Brexit because she doesn't have the majority anymore? Are we going to have a creme brulee uh, Brexit, a hard on the outside, soft on the inside? W what is your prediction? Well, I think it's very difficult to know what is actually going to happen because um, on the one hand some people are saying this is the end of hard Bre Brexit, it's the death of hard Brexit, the fact that she wants to do a deal and needs to do a deal with the Democratic Unionist Party does mean that their interests are going to have to be taken into account and Democratic Unionist Party was a pro-Brexit party but it does support a much softer version of a Brexit because it, it doesn't want to have a hard border with the Republic of Ireland which has certain implications for the idea of a customs union um, and if she wants to accommodate them she's going to need to um, be much uh, softer than the Conservative manifesto was going into the election. At the same time um, people were saying that more uh, soft Brexit forces within the cabinet like Philip Hammond who many people thought might get moved out of his role and has now been confirmed as uh, carrying on as, as chancellor will be empowered and will be able to 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 uh, threaten to go if um, or to put more pressure on her if, if she tries to to, um, to have a very hard Brexit and um, the majority which the government uh, enjoys in fact it is less than zero so it enjoys no majority <laughs> which means that um, it will have to reach out beyond the Conservative Party and accommodate the views of other political parties the Labour Party the Scottish National Party and other parties which are not as keen on a hard Brexit so for those reasons people say that hard Brexit is dead but at the same time all the things which make Theresa May have to listen to these other forces that want a soft Brexit 
also empower the, the hardline Eurosceptics in her party. So she might enjoy the support of 10 Democratic Unionists, but there are many more than 10 hardline, head-banging um, Eurosceptics in the Conservative Party, any of which could also threaten to uh, vote against the government. And I, my first job was working in the House of Commons during the Maastricht ratification period, where John Major began with a majority of, of 25. And he found that that majority disappeared in, um, over time, partly because people died, there were by-elections, but also because people were defecting and refusing to support him on different issues. And it meant that at any time the government could collapse uh, on Maastricht, including because of collateral damage. Some people were rebelling because they had hospitals in their constituency that they didn't want to have closed down and they knew that they were empowered to, to hold the government hostage. And what happens now in this new electoral landscape is that any two members of parliament who want to put a gun to Theresa May's head can do it and they can deprive her of her majority. So it's very difficult to see how they agree a on any vision, soft or hard or creme brûlée, uh, let alone deliver it through a, uh, a, a ratification in House of Commons. And I, I think that means that this government is unstable. It's quite likely that they'll have to be an election uh, before there's an attempt to ratify any deal but it might even be before the deal actually gets negotiated at all because they might not be able to agree a negotiating mandate but even if they do there's I think very very little chance that it will sail through the House of Commons having seen what happened to John Major on Maastricht where he had a much much bigger majority I would hate to be the person responsible for for taking that through and one of the interesting things about this government is that david davis the brexit minister who i think is remaining in post was the europe minister during that period and and has first-hand memories of how what a nightmare it is to try and deal with fractious conservative backbenchers on the europe issue so all of this makes it sound as if this is going to take a lot of time and time is exactly what the British government doesn't have in the negotiations with the European Union because article 50 has already been called and the clock is ticking so did this election make it more likely that we may not see a deal at all and then after the two years of negotiation time have run out um, there may not be a deal with the European Union I think that is the big danger and um, what's interesting is that one of the first reactions came from Donald Tusk, the President of the European Council, who said we don't know when Brexit talks start but we do know when they must end and unless there is a negotiated deal by November 2008, according to Michel Barnier, the Commission's chief negotiator, it will be impossible to get it ratified by all the EU institutions in time to come into effect before March 2019, which is when it would have to be in place for Britain not to have a cliff edge exit from the European Union. So it does seem that that has become a more likely outcome. I think it's much more difficult to see how you're going to get the government behind a single deal. And a lot of time is going to be wasted um, just trying to, to keep the party together, I think, over the next few months. So I think it will be a much more intrusive process from the British side. And the EU is also going to worry about whether 
a British government that signs a deal with it will actually be able to get it ratified in London and on the on the on the UK side, which might mean that there have to be another general election, and that it will be the next government which has a mandate to get this deal negotiated, or the deal could be rejected in a general election. Well, so let's talk about the EU. Um, have we had any interesting reactions other than the one from Donald Tusk that you just talked about um, from European leaders, from the EU, um, from anyone else? Because I saw that, you know, on during the night on Twitter, everyone just assumed that the EU was really happy about this um, because Theresa May didn't get the majority she wanted to make hard Brexit happen. But do you think that's really the sentiment in Brussels and Berlin and Paris today? I think people in other capitals are increasingly frustrated and baffled by British politics. Most people uh, didn't understand why the Brexit happened, were kind of angry and upset about it, but did just want to get on with delivering it. The big worries in the early days was that you'd have a government that wanted to have its cake and eat it, and that this would undermine the existing EU and lead to copycat movements in other places. I think there was a degree of relief when Theresa May came forward with a plan for quite a hard Brexit because it was moving away from the cake and eat it strategy and it would be visibly less good than being within the EU. Uh, paradoxically, if you have a more pro-European government uh, calling for a softer Brexit, that will be create deals which could be more difficult for the rest of the EU to negotiate. For example, if you want to maintain access to the single market or stay in the customs union, um, and but still want to do things about freedom of movement, that you know starts to cross some of the red lines, um, which. EU governments have set out but I also think that they wanted to make sure that there was a government that would be strong enough to last during the course of the negotiations and strong enough to get the deal ratified and that's not the kind of government that seems to be emerging it's going to be to coin a, a, a Tory phrase something that looks like a coalition of chaos in fact minus the coalition <laughs> so, you, so you think uh, the European side would actually have been happiest if the UK had just kept the original government with Theresa May in charge and a reasonable majority. I'm not sure. If, I don't know, you know, exactly how this is going to work. In some ways, uh, you know, it will be easier for them. This is going to be a negotiation. If you're up against a weak partner, you can dictate the terms of the negotiations a bit more. But at the same time, if your partner's too weak, it could mean that the whole thing collapses and that's not in anyone's interest. And I think many member states do have things at stake here. You know, there is uh, a worry about cake and eat it thing leading to the uh, dismantling uh, of the EU and the collapse of the Eki Communautaire. So people were kind of worried about that. There are economic interests that people have at stake. There are many EU citizens, three million based in the UK that need to be uh, defended. Um, and there is also a huge black hole in EU finances once the UK leaves. And if there isn't a deal, then it it means that Britain won't be filling this black hole in the finances. So they, I think there are many reasons why EU governments want to have a deal. And if they think that this does make a no deal situation more likely, I think that might make them worry. But the biggest uh, loss of a no deal scenario is the UK. There's an asymmetry here because the EU represents the, the largest single market for the, for the UK. Um, whereas the UK um, is, uh, you know, only one of 
28 um, markets which other member states are, are doing trade with. So there, there is a kind of natural asymmetry, which means that no deal will be bad for everyone, but worse for the UK. Right. So let's talk about winners and losers. It kind of sounds the UK in the Brexit negotiation is a loser, I would think. Um, the EU may not, clear, not be as clear a winner as maybe assumed, but who else? Who were the winners and losers of this election? Well, within the UK, the biggest win loser, um, it, I think, was Theresa May. This is a personal defeat for her. It shatters her authority, as we sort of discussed earlier. It's been striking watching a lot of her rivals within the Conservative Party, people that she sacked and undermined, now coming out with a degree of schadenfreude. One of the most visible ones has been George Osborne, the former finance minister, who uh, both said that this is the... Um, the end of a hard Brexit but he's also questioning uh, her kind of position within the party Anna Soubry who was a very pro-Remain Conservative MP who was very outspoken and lively who'd lost her seat in the election also um, uh, has been uh, critical of, of Theresa May's position I think it's a big defeat for moderate Labour MPs there are many people who were hoping that uh, Jeremy Corbyn would do so badly that he could get removed and that there would be a return to the centre ground for the Labour Party but the soft bigotry of low expectations has meant that Jeremy Corbyn's election defeat looks like a triumph because people thought he was going to get annihilated rather than simply defeated and that means that there's almost no hope for moderate Labour MPs of challenging him and getting rid of him in fact it's more likely that the party will, will unite behind him a third big winner are the Scottish National Party. They were hoping to have a second independence referendum on the back of the Brexit referendum. Third big loser. Sorry, you said winner. Oh, sorry. Yeah, loser. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. God. The thing is, when things go really badly wrong, the winners and the losers often end up <laughs> looking like they're the same people. But anyway, the, the uh, Scottish National Party um, were hoping to have a, a, a second independence referendum. Um, but they lost almost 20 seats, including uh, many to the Conservative Party. And the Conservative Party has emerged as a champion for the union. And their charismatic leader, who had a, a great election, she, I think would be one of the top on the list of winners, um, said that this is the, the death of the of Indy Ref 2, as it's known, the second independence referendum. The, the, shall I carry on with the winners? Please do the winners. The, the other winners, I think, are any group of MPs who want to hold the government hostage. As I said <laughs> earlier, any two MPs can uh, basically club together and uh, remove the government's majority from it. So uh, there'll be lots of empowered sources. Um, another big winner, obviously, the Democratic Unionist Party, who are going to be able to dictate the terms for this, uh, for this deal and can pull the plug on the government if they're not satisfied. And uh, Jeremy Corbyn, I think, is the, the, the third big winner. I mean, he, he both um, cements his, his grip on the Labour Party. Um, I think also uh, it will mean that Labour front benchers like Brexit spokesperson Keir Starmer suddenly become very important figures in the, in the negotiations ahead. Fascinating. So we're looking at uh, times of insurgency in the British Parliament. Um, maybe before we end this podcast... Can you say two words about what happened in Scotland? Uh, you just said the uh, Scottish National Par Party lost 
most seats, I think. I think uh, no other parties, party lost as many seats as um, the Scottish National Party. What happened there? I mean, they were doing so well in the last election. How did that happen? Well, I think there are two things which are happening to the Scottish National Party. The first is that they were a new broom in Scotland. They came in and were seen as insurgents. The Labour Party had run Scotland for, for many, many years and many people thought that it had become complacent and had taken the Scottish people for granted. And um, the Scottish National Party overthrew the, the dominance of the Labour Party first within the Scottish Parliament and had been running the Scottish Parliament for a while. And then in the last election, they uh, annihilated them and eliminated them from, from the House of Commons as well. So there's only one uh, Labour MP that was left after the 2015 election in Scotland. And this had been the kind of bastion of the Labour Party. Um, and uh, what's happened now is that they've been in power for a long time. So people are starting to look at some of the problems of having a Scottish national pol uh, government in, in Holyrood for a, for a long period of time. They have seen that, you know, there are some things that they like about them and there are other things that they don't like about them. And, and the sheen inevitably starts to wear off any party that's been in power for a long time. They are now the establishment. They run everything. It's quite difficult to be the establishment and the anti-establishment at the same time. They manage that trick for a while, <laughs> but it becomes more and more difficult. And secondly, they rather cynically tried to use the European referendum and the Brexit result as an excuse to have a second independence referendum and many people in Scotland felt that that issue had been settled with the first independence referendum and were therefore looking for uh, a way of thwarting that and this has led to the rather strange resurgence of conservative Scotland. Ruth Davidson who's an incredibly articulate able and uh, impressive figure the leader of the scottish conservatives um grasped the issue and she tried to turn herself into the voice of unionism in scotland and has um used that to lead a scottish revival uh, a conservative revival in scotland and the conservative party had been completely wiped out of scotland during the the long period of, of conservative government um and is, is now coming back um, and has a, a clear voice and because she's she's not trying necessarily to get a majority of Scots um, to, to vote for her but to appeal uh, to the you know uh, well the small majority that voted in favor of, uh, of, of staying in the union to get as many of those people as possible she's she's been able to build a real political um, force and in some ways that is also a situation that suits the Scottish National Party because they would much rather that uh, the party of the union were the Conservative Party than that, that it were the Labour Party because uh, they're a better rival for them to have as well. So I think that's what, what's happening and um, it has created a big headache for uh, Nicola Sturgeon who has to decide what to do next and I think that um, it's likely that she will now have to walk away from the second independence referendum right so we may have another general election in the uk but probably not another referendum and i think quite a lot of people may be quite happy about that 
So, Ulrika, are we doing a bookshelf segment on this week's podcast? <laughs> I, I think we are, Mark. We should, we should be doing a bookshelf segment. So what's segment. on your bookshelf? <laughs> you, you just really like to ask this question, right? You couldn't let me ask it to you first. Okay, well, I have uh, made it my quest to recommend as many science fiction books as I can on this podcast. I think this is number four, if I'm not mistaken. So I'll recommend another one. Um, it's called The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. It's written by Robert Heinlein and it is very much recommended for anyone who's interested in artificial intelligence and politics and the moon and revolution because this is a story about how an artificial intelligence is leading the revolution on the moon. Much recommended. So Mark, what's on your bookshelf? Well, I've been so uh, preoccupied by different political events uh, in different countries recently that I've done less reading of books in the last few days but what I have discovered is a pretty incredible television series which um, is a fra- I suppose it's France's answer to the House of Cards it's called Baron Noir you can get it on Amazon Prime and maybe some other platforms and um, it's a really amazingly compelling story about this extraordinarily Machiavellian political figure and his rivalry with other political figures in France. And it looks at how politics is being changed at a national level, at a local level. And um, it's one of the things which is... I think even more nasty and brutish and short than the political careers of the people who's like who've, uh, <laughs> who've just come a cropper in the in the British election. So it's much recommended. Baron Noir. We'll put a link to that, I suppose. Or maybe that's up to you to say. <laughs> it is up to me to say that we are going to put links to both the book, um, the TV series and any insightful ECFR comments that we have already published or will publish on the UK general election on our website. This brings this very interesting podcast to an end. Um, I'm sure we will come back to British politics and the Brexit debate soon. But for today, this is goodbye from Mark Leonard and myself. We are saying goodbye from Oxford and thank you to our editor, Pauline Goodmin.